0: Hello and welcome to episode 334 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story comes from the west coast of Scotland and focuses on a trawler operating from a port there. Now, our women and men who go to sea know that the job of fishing offshore can be a dangerous one due to the nature of the work. But this crew could not have foreseen the additional danger that we examine in the story today. Last week I spoke to you about one of my favourite true crime podcasts, The Troubles, hosted by all-round top man Oshin, who I spent a lot of time with in Glasgow last year. With all the recent news around the Good Friday Agreement in his latest episode, Oshin gives a really simple to understand explanation of what this agreement was all about and why it came about. I also listened to an older episode this week of his, about a man called Desi Hare, remember him? He was a paramilitary who played a role in one of Ireland's most notorious kidnappings. Take a listen to the Troubles podcast. It really is a great listen. Okay, so let's set some context for today's story with our guest, the month and year game. At number three in the UK music charts was one time (laughs) (laughs) true crime podcaster, seriously, Vanilla Ice with Ice Ice Baby. Now, if I recall correctly, in a (laughs) In a parallel universe, he did release a true crime podcast about racehorse Shergar. Check it out. At number one in the US charts, it was Mariah Carey with It Takes Time. And in Australia, top of the album charts was The Voice, John Farnham with Chain Reaction. In the news this month, Mary Robinson was elected President of Ireland, the first female to hold that position. Christmas Favourite, Home Alone star in Macaulay Culkin premiered. And in the New Zealand seaside town of Aramona, 13 people were shot dead in the Aramona Massacre. Pop duo Millie Vanilli were stripped of their Grammy Award. After it was learned they did not sing on their award-winning Girl You Know It's True album. Now, named singers not actually singing the songs, who'd have thought it? This month saw Margaret Thatcher announcing her resignation as British Prime Minister. I remember it well, I was at Loftus Road queuing to watch the mighty Leeds United play QPR. And finally, this month saw the death of Ronald Dahl. So did you guess the month and year? It was, of course, November 1990. Maybe next week, huh? Okay, so on to today's story. Carradale is a village on the east coast of Kintyre, off the west coast of Scotland, and looking out over the west coast of the Isle of Arran across the Firth of Clyde. As the crow flies, it's about 80 miles west of Glasgow, but by road the trip is about 130 miles and takes over three hours. The harbour at Carradale is sheltered and very picturesque. Looking out at the deep waters of Kibranan Sound and then the towering mountains. Of Arran, just a couple of miles away. It is a beautiful, peaceful spot, and if you look carefully, you will see a small memorial plaque on the harbour wall commemorating the crew of the FV Antares, who lost their lives in November 1990. The Antares was a small trawler, 50 foot, made mostly of wood that was built in Aberdeenshire in the 60s. It could be used for a variety of commercial fishing activities but when we joined the story, it was being used to catch fish that live in mid-water such as herring and mackerel. The skipper and owner of the boat was 33-year-old Jamie Russell. He was known locally as Hurricane Jake because he was always the last boat back to port in stormy weather. He was a very experienced fisherman, entering the fishing industry on leaving school and after a brief time away, working in the industry again from 1977. He bought his first boat in 1980 and purchased the Antares in 1987. With him was a crew of three trusted men, 24-year-old Barry Martindale who had worked on the Antares since Jamie Russell had bought her, 20-year-old Dougal Campbell who had worked in the fishing industry since leaving school and 29-year-old Stuart Campbell who had been a member of the Antares crew since April 1990. On this trip, the Antares had been fishing the Clyde for a number of days, returning to the Scottish mainland, the town of Largs, every day to unload the day's catch. On the 21st of November, the Antares left Largs at about 5.30pm and headed to a nearby area of deep water, known as the Arran Trench, for a long period of fishing which would last throughout the night. When they were there, there were two other local fishing boats operating in the same area that night, Heroin and Hercules too. The weather was perfect for fishing with light variable winds, excellent visibility of almost 10 miles and a calm sea. The sea temperature was about 11 degrees and the air temperature over the water 6 degrees, with very weak currents in the area. Make no mistake, it was still cold for the men on board, as they released their nets over the side, and began trawling. Once the tow of the nets had begun, Jamie Russell, the skipper, had a VHF radio conversation with the skipper of the heroine. During this conversation, Jamie told how he planned to tow north, and when he turned at the northerly end of the tow, he was going below, and one of the crew would be taking over. This was a standard conversation, and once it was finished, the three trawlers continued to fish, not speaking any further. Then just before 10.30pm, a crew member on the Antares made his usual telephone call home to his wife and confirmed to her that they were fishing at what he described as the back of Arran and that all was well with the boat and the crew. This is the last that anyone would ever hear from the crew of the Antares. Also in the 4th of Clyde that evening was the Royal Navy's submarine HMS Trenchant. At 85 metres long, and usually manned by a crew of around 120, this vessel was taking part in the submarine command course, more commonly known as the Perisher. This is a really tricky course for officers aspiring to take charge of their own submarine, and it's known as having a tiny success rate. Over the 16 weeks it runs, it combines land and sea-based assessments, and the final test in the Perisher, It's where each student takes command of a submarine during a simulated war scenario. They must complete a variety of tasks whilst being hunted by other Royal Navy vessels in a pretend battle scenario. The stakes are high as anyone who fails the course is immediately removed from the submarine by boat or helicopter and they cannot serve on a Royal Navy submarine in any way, shape or form for the rest of their career. At this time, the trenchant was being used in the final stages of the perisher course and had her usual complement of 120 staff on board, along with five additional officers, the commanding officer of the command course and four students. When we pick up the story, one of the students was in control of the submarine, being supervised by the commanding officer, carrying out a simulated mine-laying operation while a Royal Navy frigate, HMS Charybdis, was on the surface of the Clyde hunting for the submarine. At 2.17am, the sonar of HMS Trenchant picked up the presence of a vessel on the surface and turned to avoid the contact. Shortly afterwards, the crew heard loud banging, followed by further unusual disturbance noises. The submarine reached periscope depth to see what was happening and saw two fishing vessels, Heroine and Hercules II, which seemed to be fishing as normal. HMS Trenchant surfaced and the crew saw the remains of a trawler net around the hull and the casing of the submarine, with trawl wires and chains embedded in the submarine's hull. The submarine tried to radio the two fishing vessels which it could see nearby, with no success, although both seemed fine. They also radioed HMS Charybdis, which also reported they'd not noticed anything wrong in the area. The submarine command assumed they had collided with the trawl nets of one of the two fishing vessels and radioed their home base of Faslane to explain about the incident, but to clarify that no harm had been caused. With this, HMS Trenchant submerged once again and continued with the perisher course. It was just after 4am that Faslane reported this incident to the local fishing authorities and concerned by the news the secretary of the Clyde Fishermen's Association contacted trawlers at sea to try to find out if any fishing boat in the area had failed to return to port. The heroine in Hercules II both told how they'd lost contact with the Antares and had assumed that she'd returned to port or headed elsewhere for better fishing. When it became apparent that the Antares had not docked, the Royal Naval Air Station at Presswick sent a helicopter to search the area, and distressingly, fishing materials and surface oil were observed by the helicopter around 11am, not far from the last known position of the Antares. This led to a full-scale search of the area, coordinated by the recalled Royal Navy frigate which had been involved in the war game scenario. In addition to lifeboats and other vessels, 33 local trawlers joined the search. The next day the discovery that all involved had dreaded was confirmed, when the sonar of one of the search vessels picked up a new uncharted wreck on the seabed. This was quickly confirmed to be the wreck of the Antares, lying in 150 metres of water. The Antares was raised from the seabed on the 10th of December 1990 by the Ministry of Defence and three of the fishermen's bodies were recovered. The body of the remaining crew member was finally recovered nearby in April 1991 in the nets of a trawler fishing. Just thinking about what actually happened on that winter's night is enough to send shivers down my spine. There were no survivors or witnesses, but a very clear picture of just what happened has been established. The nets from the Antares were 30 metres long by 100 metres wide and were set at a depth of 60 metres. The submarine below the surface changed its course when it picked up contact on the sonar from the antarès, causing it to run through the nets of the trawler. The fishermen would not have realised anything was wrong until their vessel suddenly and violently capsized and then turned upside down in the water, being dragged under the surface until the trawl wires snapped. Upside down under the water, the Antares would have rapidly filled with water and then sunk. This would all have happened incredibly quickly. The official report into the investigation noted that the banging noises heard by the crew of HMS Trenchant was the initial contact between the submarine and the trawl net, while the disturbance noises picked up later by the submarine were likely to have been the sound of the Antares sinking to the seabed. Without going into the detail, it is likely the crew were not able to escape from the stricken trawler until she was well on her way to the bottom. The subsequent fatal accident inquiry into the incident made it very clear that full blame for this tragedy lay with the officers and crew of HMS Trenchant. What happened that night was a result of human error, including a complete failure by the crew of HMS Trenchant to follow the instructions of the flag officer's submarines contained in a guidance booklet on fishing vessel avoidance. This certainly wasn't the first time that a submarine and fishing vessel had come together, so the guidance was very, very clear. And crucially, the submarine did not surface until 33 minutes after the collision. Quite why there was such a delay is still unclear. There is the possibility that if this hadn't taken so long, and if the crew of the submarine hadn't taken so long in notifying their base about what had happened, the men on board the Antares could have been saved. The Marine Accident Investigations Branch report made a number of recommendations to prevent such an incident happening again, and this report too made it very clear who was responsible for the disaster, concluding, The sole cause of the collision was a partial breakdown in the watchkeeping structure and standards on board Trenchant. This was due to the fact that the crew of the submarine were so engrossed in tracking the positioning and activities of the HMS frigate, and this led to a lack of attention being paid to the civilian vessels which were in the area at the time. So why were there no criminal proceedings against anyone on the submarine in this case, you might well ask? Many others have asked the same question. Following the tragedy, it was incredibly difficult for the families to get any answers. With the depressingly unsurprising secrecy card being played by the Navy, as well as at one stage the families just being told it was a freak accident, it wasn't. It clearly wasn't. And it is clear that certain individuals should have been in the dock in a court of law. But the Royal Navy and British government were very slow in responding throughout the aftermath of the disaster. Eventually, a year later, the Crown Office decided that no naval personnel involved in the sinking would face legal action. No reasons for the decision were given. A Ministry of Defence spokesman added that the commander-in-chief of the fleet was considering whether to take disciplinary action against the men. And in June 1992, one man was court-martialed on six counts of negligence. Submariner Lieutenant Commander Peter McDonnell, one of the students on the perisher course, was found guilty on three charges and severely reprimanded. The charges were failing to realise how close the trawler was to the trenchant, allowing the Antares to stay on a collision course without verifying its range and being unaware of the presence of a second trawler. George Falks, the local MP, and families of those who had lost their lives expressed anger at the outcome of the court-martial and Armed Forces Minister Archie Hamilton's decision not to take further disciplinary action, as they believed that a student officer under training, McDonnell, had been made a scapegoat by the Navy. They pointed out there'd been others on board with far more experience, why weren't they being held to account? And Robert Hind, the solicitor representing the youngest victim of the tragedy, 20-year-old, Dougal Campbell said The decision by the Royal Navy confirms that Lieutenant Commander Macdonald was a scapegoat. At the court-martial we were told he'd made errors in underwater navigation techniques and that these errors for which he was court-martialed did not contribute to the loss of the Antares. At that stage the families asked a legitimate question if his errors did not contribute to the loss of the Antares whose did? Today we are still asking the same question. Effectively, no one is being held responsible for the loss of the Antares. And unfortunately, going forward now to the present day, what is it now? It's uh, April 2023, nobody was ever held accountable. I'm sure like me, you can feel the deep frustration felt by the friends and families of those who lost their lives that nobody faced trial. Both the Fatal Accident Inquiry and the Marine Accident Investigation into the sinking made a series of recommendations, including that immediate action should be taken to establish a separation zone of at least 3,000 yards between dive submarines and vessels engaged in fishing and that submarine warfare exercises should be moved to more remote areas of the Firth of Clyde and segregated completely from fishing interests. The Royal Navy accepted the recommendations. But has this really helped? The issue for the Navy and Clyde's trawler fleet is that the deep water trenches, running in a horseshoe around the Isle of Arran from the north, ideal both for submarine activity and for fishing. The sinking of the Antares proves that it is a fatal combination. There is lots of speculation that submarines have been responsible for other incidents involving fishing vessels and there are still near misses. Some are certain that some of these incidents have been the result of a coming together of submarines and fishing boats. Although the government and Navy deny involvement, but as we have seen today, they are very unwilling to admit to any errors, so many doubt their statements. Let's pick just one of these. A case from Cornwall. In February 1991, a trawler left port for what was supposed to be a routine fishing trip for scallops. After having heard nothing from the Pescado since it departed on February the 25th, a search began for the ship on the 5th of March. This ship was eventually found at the bottom of the ocean, with all six of the crew tragically losing their lives. The Marine Accident Investigation Branch in 1988 said that the boat sank as a result of inexperienced crew and faulty equipment. But many didn't believe this. The owner believed from the dent on the hull of the trawler and the black marks that he found there that it had been clearly hit by a submarine. The Ministry of Defence immediately went on the attack in a statement where they declared there was absolutely no submarine of any nationality in the area between February the 25th when the trawler set sail and March the 8th when it was confirmed sunk. Now it was only detective work from the owner of the boat that proved conclusively that submarines had been seen in the area that led the MOD to admit that there had been at least, at least two submarines in the area during this time and that their earlier insistence that absolute denials had been a misunderstanding. So was the Biscardo sunk by a submarine? It still isn't conclusive, but you have to question the official report and the willingness of the Ministry of Defence and Navy to be honest in these situations. And there are other examples. In April 1982, an Irish fishing boat, the Sheralga, was trawling for prawns in the Irish Sea about 30 miles off the coast of Dublin when a submarine ran over its nets capsizing the boat. The five crew jumped in the water and were luckily rescued by nearby trawlers. The submarine, by the way, didn't surface to help in the rescue. Depressingly, at first, the British government and Ministry of Defence denied any involvement in what happened, but a number of weeks later, they admitted that the sinking had been caused by one of those submarines. They later admitted that the nets had been caught by HMS porpoise which was looking for Soviet submarine activity in the Irish Sea. Again, leaving the scene of the incident without helping survivors, should some of those on the submarine have been held accountable in a court of law. And going back to Scotland, it's so easy to see why many people fully believe the fishing community when they talk about the number of submarine incidents and near misses. Not just the lack of accountability, but also when you see how many times submarine crews in Scotland showed a real lack of competence, such as in November 2018, when a naval submarine came to within 50 to 100 metres of a Stena ferry crossing from Belfast to Scotland. The ferry was carrying 215 passengers and 67 crew. The UK government's Marine Accident Investigation Branch launched an inquiry which blamed the Royal Navy for putting the ferry in immediate danger. In fact, a collision, a calamitous collision, was only avoided because a ferry officer literally spotted the submarine's periscope peeping out of the sea. I mean, seriously, Google it. It's terrifyingly close. And if it hit the ferry, it could have been catastrophic. The spotting of the periscope by ferry staff was extremely fortunate, the report concluded as it led to the ferry quickly altering course. The Navy refused to say whether anyone was disciplined following the incident, but campaigners accused the Navy of using the excuse of national security to cover up dangerous incompetence. The report went on to criticise the submarine crew for failing in bad decisions, such as turning towards the ferry and staying at periscope depth based on inaccurate information. It also noted similarities with one particular incident in 2015, which is very relevant to our story today. This saw the fishing trawler Karen dragged backwards and partially submerged off Northern Ireland after its nets were caught by a nuclear submarine. This report squarely put the blame on the Navy too and said the absence of a sufficiently accurate picture of surface shipping to support safety-critical decision-making. The fishermen on board Caron were incredibly fortunate to escape with their lives and only did so because the cable attached to their net snapped. The Chief Inspector of Marine Accidents said, 18 months ago the actions of the command team of a Royal Navy submarine placed the lives of the crew of the trawler Caron in danger. Regrettably, the reluctance of the Royal Navy to fully engage in the subsequent investigation resulted in this report taking significantly longer to deliver than would normally be the case. He continued that lessons learnt after the sinking of the Antares in 1990 had been lost. As a result, it's now important that the Royal Navy reviews its procedures and training for the safe conduct of dive submarine operations in the same vicinity as vessels engaging in fishing. By its actions, the Royal Navy also needs to rebuild trust with the fishing industry. In response, the Navy spokesperson said, We've expressed our regret and remain sorry for the incident and delay in confirming our involvement. We've revised our procedures so to reduce the risk that such an incident can happen again, and we're reviewing the report's recommendations and continue to work closer with the maritime community to maximise safety. I guess it's exactly what you'd expect them to say. But the skipper of the Caron was not impressed with this, saying, The Royal Navy were playing Russian roulette that day. Any one of 61 trawlers in the Irish Sea could have been involved. The Royal Navy must have lost touch with the fishing industry. I thought that after the Antares incident that things would have gotten better. A proscol in place was supposed to have made us all feel safe. And the skipper was also furious at the Navy's delay again. In accepting responsibility for the incident. In 2021, the BBC drama Vigil involved an incident very similar to the one involving the Antares, when a submarine ran the nets of the trawler, capsizing it, and an actor even references the tragedy in the scene. And as for HMS Trenchant, a few years ago it starred, if that's the right word, in a documentary about life on a submarine, which I believe you can still watch on Channel 5 in the UK. It's called Submarine Life Under the Waves. And in 2021, HMS Trenchant was taken out of service as she arrived at Devonport Naval Base for the final time, ahead of her decommissioning later that year. As for the Antares, it was bequeathed to the Scottish Maritime Museum, where it became part of the museum's fleet. When maintaining the vessel became too costly, it was scrapped in Troon in 2008 with permission from the crew's families. So, what do you make of what we've heard today? The clear conflict between commercial fishing operations and naval operations. And depressingly for me, a reluctance of the Navy and government to be open and transparent. Why is it so hard for governments to realise that they work for us? and should help us as we search for the truth. On a much more trivial level, if you have followed my fight in my local Scottish town to try and get transparency from the Scottish government and Scottish forestry in particular for their actions, you will realise how frustrated I am too. I've just not been able to get honest answers, just straightforward answers. Why? Maybe these are questions for another podcast. But more than that, today this story is about four young men who went to sea to catch fish and never came home. As you listen to this podcast in a safe place, we should remember that fishing is a dangerous business. Just in 2021, at least 10 people fishing from Scottish ports died doing their jobs. But the battle with the elements is something that is accepted by those who fish off our coasts. Dealing with submarines, being incompetently managed as they are more interested in playing war games than civilian safety is something quite different altogether. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this episode and any other aspect of UK True Crime, please join the 90,000 of us at our Facebook group who discuss UK True Crime 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And to support the show at Patreon, and why wouldn't you, to keep me producing a completely free episode every week, just head to patreon.com/uktruecrime slash UK True Crime. For as little as £15 a year, which you can cancel at any time, you'll get over 50 bonus episodes and loads more exclusive content. And of course, a warm, fuzzy feeling from being part of our community. Okay, so that's all for me today. Next week, we are back on more familiar grounds with a little-known UK serial killer. So until we speak again next week, enjoy yourself, take it easy, and despite all the others, and it is, as we know, always the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now.